0: Um, Pastor Andrew, and I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but the air conditioning is not currently working in the chapel. Anyone else noticed that when they came in this morning? Yeah, there we go. Amen. Well, uh, someone said we should probably put something on Facebook warning them to dress, uh, you know, cool. I'm like, no way. They're never just going to stay home and live stream. So I intentionally kept this a secret until you already decided to be here today, and I don't feel bad about it at all. But I'm glad you're here, and, and I do believe it's going to be a worthwhile time, and I, I hope you'll be comfortable, not only physically, uh, but also uh, emotionally and spiritually as we encounter God's Word together, and, and it'll be a worthwhile way to spend our time. As Emery mentioned in his sharing time, uh, he and I spent a lot of time over the course of this weekend in Rosenort, um, and it was a, for the EMC Festival, and that was the first time in my life i have been to Rosenort, um, because you don't ever go to Rosenort unless you actually need to go to Rosenort. It's not on the way to anywhere. It's actually hard to get to, you can't even go straight there. But it was a great weekend. I was very encouraged. and I wanted to pass it on to you. Uh, we, I'm, I'm encouraged and excited about what God is doing in our midst here at Stony Brook. It's been a really uh, fruit-filled time that, that I've been able to walk alongside you as a pastor to see lives changed and transformed and matured and to see our church grow in that maturity and also in, in numbers. And, and it's exciting. But it was even more exciting for me to get a greater sense of what God is doing in our network and our movement of churches and, and, to, and to know that our story, and our excitement is not just isolated. There are so many other ways that God is moving in EMC churches across this country, and I was grateful to be able to just be a part of that and celebrate together over the course of the weekend. It was even hotter outside at some of the events that we were at, but you know what? We made the most of it there as well. But what are we going to do today? We are going to continue on in our sermon series in Acts. Now, perhaps the, the best or greatest known escape artist in history is Harry Houdini. And if we say Houdini, you know exactly who I'm talking about. And you may be even familiar with some of his exploits. He would, he would escape from uh, shackles and handcuffs and manacles and, and sealed barrels and straitjackets and all manner of different escapes. And one of his most famous was the water torture cell. I have a picture of that that you can see as well. In this escape, Houdini's feet were locked in stalks, and he was lowered upside down into a tank filled with water. The mahogany and metal cage featured a, a glass front through which audiences could clearly see Houdini. The stalks were locked at the top of the cell, and a curtain concealed his escape. In the earliest version of the torture cell, a metal cage was lowered into the cell, and Houdini was enclosed inside that as well. While making the escape more difficult, the cage prevented Houdini from turning around. The cage bars also offered protection from the front glass in case they were to break. So Houdini did many things that amazed and astounded those of his time and continue to amaze and astound us today. It felt like he could escape from anything except for eventually appendicitis, but that's a whole other story. If you're wondering why it's nice to live not at the turn of the century, then that's, that's one good reason. Uh, in Acts chapter 12 where we're going to spend our time this morning, the Apostle Peter puts even Harry Houdini to shame when it comes to an amazing escape, an escape that defies understanding and leaves everybody amazed. Though unlike Houdini, Peter's escape used less conventional means. The story that we will also go over gives us a great example of the power of prayer. So the beginning of our story in Acts 12 is actually tragic we see that King Herod decides to imprison the Apostle James, one of the core leaders of the early church, and he decides to execute him. He puts him to the sword. And now James joins Stephen as a martyr for his faith. So we have a a couple questions we need to ask ourselves in order to understand this story. First of all, which James are we talking about? Because there's lots to choose from. James, son of Zebedee, brother of John. James, son of Alphaeus, known as small James or lesser James, also a disciple. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, referred to at the end of this story. You get the sense that there wasn't too many boys' names to choose from in that time period in Jewish culture. But no, we are talking about James, uh, son of Zebedee which is James, brother of John. If we talk about Peter, James, and John, the three closest disciples of Jesus, it was that James. Someone very near and dear to the heart of Christ. Someone in the very inner circle of even the apostles themselves. A high-profile leader in the early church. Now, which Herod put him to death? This was Herod Agrippa I. He was grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod that put all those children in Bethlehem to death in an attempt to kill baby Jesus. He was the half-brother of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the Herod who killed John the Baptist in the Gospels and then judged Jesus when he stood on trial in those same books. And he is the father of Herod Agrippa II, who is the one later in the book of Acts who will judge Paul when he stands on trial. So when you say Herod... We need to know which one. And Herod Agrippa I was known for wanting to gain favor of the Jewish leaders. And so what we have when he puts James to death, we have a politically motivated execution. And for the first time now, the church has received political attention. They had received religious attention by the Pharisees when they stoned Stephen for blasphemy. But now, the eye of Herod, and by extension, the eye of Rome, has been turned towards the church, and there has been bloodshed on that front as well, because Herod was doing this to please the Pharisees, to gain favor with the Jewish elite. That was his goal. And when he saw that this accomplished his goal, he put James to death, and the Jewish leaders liked it. The Pharisees approved of it. Well, then he wants to double down. He says, I'm going to do the same thing to Peter, one of those other inner three disciples of Jesus, one other power player in the early church. So now Peter is imprisoned, and the intent is to put him to death. Unfortunately for Herod, he can't do this right away because now is the, uh, the festival of the Passover, the festival of unleavened bread. And during that time, nothing can be done. So he doesn't want to infringe on the the sanctity of, of a Jewish holiday because he's doing this to gain favor with the Jewish community. So there is a few days reprieve where Peter is imprisoned but not yet executed. It has to pause because of the Passover. And during this time, the church prays. And they pray earnestly. They pray wholeheartedly that God would rescue Peter and that he would not share the same fate as James. And the very night before his planned execution, talking about the very 11th hour. In the morning, Peter's life is going to change and it's ultimately going to end. And at that 11th hour, God answers the church's prayer in a miraculous way, in an unforeseen way, a way that even those praying didn't truly understand or comprehend. We read that, that on that night before his planned execution to be brought before the, the Jewish religious leaders, Peter is sleeping between Two soldiers chained with two more guarding the door. In fact, Luke goes out of his way to describe that there are four squadrons. That squadron is a a group of four soldiers that were taking turns guarding Peter. He was under guard by by four soldiers at any point and now chained between two of them. This was a, a situation that even Harry Houdini himself would have had a difficult, if not impossible, time getting free from. And as Peter is sleeping, chained in between these guards, an angel of the Lord appears, and light shines in the cell. And there's a supernatural experience, and then it's followed by a very human experience where the angel nudges Peter and says, Hey, get up. (laughs) Wake up. I know it's a very human experience because I had to do that for both my dad and Emery during the EMC meetings this weekend. Hey, wake up. They're talking about you. And that is only half a lie. You'll notice throughout this story that there is a lot of humor that Luke writes into it. He writes a lot of humanity and, and, and humor and levity into a very difficult and miraculous story. So the angel truly nudges Peter and tells him to get up quickly. And then the chains on Peter's hands fall off and the angel instructs him just to put on your clothes. Put on your cloak. We're going outside. Follow me. And, and in this daze, you know how you feel when you're just suddenly woken up? You're not... You're not You know, all your synapses aren't firing very quick. You're not sure what's going on. But Peter, in this dazed state, puts on his clothes. He obediently follows the angel. And at this point, we learn that that Peter is confused, probably very sleepy, and he thinks that he is seeing a vision. He doesn't believe or understand that this rescue is actually happening to him. He sees the angel. He follows his instructions, and he just assumes, well, God is giving me another vision, I think we can understand that half asleep state. Uh, uh, I love my children. They're great sleepers. That's one of the reasons I love them so much. Uh, every once in a while, Eli, my oldest, will have these kind of half sleepwalking experiences. He'll come into our room and, and he'll be mostly still asleep, but he tries to talk. He can never finish his sentences and he's not making any sense. But as soon as we challenge him, we say, Eli, are you still sleeping? He's like, No, I'm not. I'm awake. And then he continues to not explain anything, and then we just guide him back to bed. And the next morning we say, hey, do you remember coming into our room? He's like, no, I didn't come into your room. <laughs> like, yeah, you were mostly asleep. I, I really think that, that Luke's describing this kind of state for Peter. He's not sure what's real and what's not. But he obediently follows the angel. He goes past the first and the second guards. So he left the first two, he was chained um, between, and then he sees the third and the fourth at these different checkpoints and finally gets to this gate leading to the city, and the gate opens on its own accord, and Peter steps out into freedom. And at that moment that he gets past all of those barriers and is free, the angel leaves in an instant. He just vanishes. And it's at that moment that Peter (laughs) comes to himself. He certainly was in a daze. He comes to himself, and he finally clues in that what happened to him was real, that he was once bound and now he is free. This is what it says in Acts twelve eleven. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Even in the middle of that rescue, he was not sure it was really true until the end. What a miraculous answer to prayer! Peter is free. He, he never thought he would be free again. And so he makes his way to a safe house of the church. It's the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Uh, John Mark is an important name because he is the one who will go on to write the gospel of Mark. And there's this connection between John Mark and Peter in the early church. And, and, and when he gets there to this house where there are other believers gathered inside and they are praying for him, Again, this is what the church has been doing. While Peter's been in prison and waiting his fate, they've been praying earnestly all the time. And so Peter comes to this place where they are praying for his release and he knocks on the door. And a servant girl named Rhoda comes and she asks, who is it? And says, it's Peter, it's me. And she recognizes his voice. And in her excitement, she forgets to let him in. And she runs back to tell everybody else that our prayers have been answered, that Peter is free. Now, Peter is in mortal peril, wanting to get off the street, and he has to stand there and wait for everybody else because Rhoda forgets to open the door. We see a little bit more of the humor that Luke writes into his story. While well, Rhoda runs back to tell the praying church that Jesus is rescued, he's alive, he's right here. And of course, because of their great and wonderful faith in their prayer, they open the door and let him right in. No, that's not how the story goes. They don't believe her. They tell her first, You're out of your mind, servant girl. What do you know about this? Let us get back to our prayers. And she persists and says, No, I I know Peter. I recognize his voice. He is here. And they say, No, it's just his angel. Meaning he's probably already executed. He's come to visit us in spirit form. He's already dead. (coughs) Can't be true. But then there's someone there. There's always a voice of reason. <clears throat> and I'm sure the reason was, the voice of reason said, Come on, you know what? Why don't we open the door and find out? It seems like a good solution. And so they finally go and they open the door and they see Peter standing there. And Luke says in verse 16 that they were well and truly amazed. They were astounded. Peter had been rescued. It was impossible, except not impossible for God. They had prayed. And God had answered, and they were utterly amazed. Peter instructs them to tell of his rescue to James. No, not the James that had been put to death. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who, who has now moved into a leadership role in the church in Jerusalem. And Peter then goes to another place, very vague, very mysterious. And we really almost never hear about Peter again. He, he comes up a little bit in, the, in Acts 15 in Jerusalem Council. But other than that, this is the last we really see a focus on Peter during the book of Acts, he, he goes on and then he, 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 he disappears from view. And then the story concludes with the least surprising outcome, which is the consequences of Peter's escape. So you've got the, four, the squad of four soldiers and they, were, they had Peter right there in between them, chained. And all of a sudden he just walks free. Well, that didn't go over very well with his superiors and with Herod. And he puts them to death because what alternative was there? It had to be their fault. It couldn't have been a miracle, could it? And the story is crazy. It's miraculous. It's funny. And with with uh, what happened to James, it's also quite tragic. But ultimately, it's a story about the power of prayer. Because we can see what God did supernaturally in this moment. And we can see the specifics of Peter's story. But for us, what matters is what the people of God did when faced with this impossible situation what did the church do when Peter was thrown into prison? What did the church do when James was put to death? Well, they prayed. And the first thing that they did is they prayed earnestly. That was what was described to us in Acts 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They didn't just moan and wail and grieve. They did something and they couldn't storm the castle. They couldn't free him by force of arms. But they, they truly did believe that the battle belonged to the Lord and they fought on their knees in prayer. And not just prayer, earnest prayer, fervent prayer, heartfelt prayer. This came from the very depths of their soul. They truly meant what they asked of God. And so when we believe we should be praying for something, we need to follow suit and do so earnestly. And if you are like me, if you've grown up in the church and and you've prayed many, many times, and we, we pray often because we know prayer is important and we want to highlight it and so we do it regularly, but sometimes the regularity of prayer and the routine of prayer undermine how earnestly we do it. So I pray before every meal, and I'll admit, it's not always very earnest. We'll pray before bed. Is that always fervent? We pray in church about things that matter, things like the eternal destiny of of the soul of Tim's uncle, right? Amen to that, that God would save somebody and draw him to himself. Tim told me last week, nobody is too far away from God, amen? And do we pray for people like that in our lives earnestly, right? Do we do this every week earnestly, That's why it's important, not just because we have to do it. And so when prayer becomes a a religious obligation, a box to be checked off in our service, when it becomes something that we're just expected to do at small group meetings, we lose the impact of prayer in our life. Not just the impact of answered prayer, but the impact on us of just wanting something that God wants so much, of, of, of just celebrating when God answers those prayers. That comes from a place of earnest prayer. And, and, and Jesus gives us a, a wonderful glimpse of what this type of earnest prayer looks like in the Gospel of Luke, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 22, verse 41 and following. This is Luke's account of Jesus praying in the garden right before he walks through this road of being arrested, betrayed, arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified. So there was no more ideas of pretending or doing anything just because you were supposed to for Jesus. Let's listen to this account. And Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. So when Jesus was at the end of himself, when he had this request on God, I can't do this. This is too hard. Is there any other way? He prayed so fervently, so earnestly, and that's the exact same word in Luke 22 as it is in Acts 12. He prayed so heartfelt in agony and honesty and in full of emotion that he was sweating like drops of blood. And God answered and sent an angel to strengthen him. Now, when we pray, we may not sweat drops of blood. If you do, you should probably call QDoc and see what's going on. But when is the last time that we were this fervent in our prayer? Jesus did that. That's how he prayed. The church prayed like that. Because, to be very honest, there are people in our lives who we love who need healing who need salvation, who need freedom from mental health struggles, who need freedom from addiction. And they deserve not our rote prayers. They deserve our fervent, earnest, honest, heartfelt prayers. Can we be a people who pray like that? So the church was praying earnestly. But not only that, but they prayed persistently as well. We have this notion of of, of this pause in the story where, where Herod had to wait to put Peter to death. He couldn't follow through because of the Passover, and it bought the church time. And I believe that the church filled this time with consistent prayer, day after day, and hour after hour, right up until the 11th hour when Peter was miraculously rescued. And again, we don't have to see this just from the book of Acts. We can look to the example and the teaching of Jesus as well in Luke 18, just a few chapters prior to what we read about him in the garden. In Luke 18, Jesus gives his followers the parable of the persistent widow. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't you love it when they just give us the the, the message at the very beginning of the parable? So this lesson is to always pray and not lose heart just like the early church did in Acts 12. And Jesus said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. He was not a good dude. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She nagged him until he gave her what she wanted. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, to his people who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus is giving us this parable using a a teaching tool that many rabbis would use, and it's called the how much more teaching method. So he's not comparing God to an unjust judge. He's saying, if an unjust, unrighteous, selfish selfish person will be moved by persistent prayer, how much more will a righteous, loving Heavenly Father want and move to act for His people? So, if this happens even for someone who does not love others, how much more will a perfectly loving Heavenly Father desire to answer the prayers of His people? That's the answer to the parable. And Jesus again uses the how much more teaching method in Matthew 7. And I love this because it doesn't just tell tell us, uh, you know, doesn't just show us God to be a judge, He shows us God to be a good Heavenly Father. This is Matthew 7, verse 7 and following. Ask, and it will be given to you, says Jesus. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, it's a bit harsh, but if you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who who ask him, how much more? If we as imperfect heavenly fathers and parents want to bless our children, how much more will God want to move and bless those whom he loves, his children? So pray persistently because God is righteous and loving and desires to answer the prayers of his people. So I am an earthly imperfect father. Jesus calls us earthly fathers evil. He's just meaning imperfect, not holy. Okay. At least that's the way that I would interpret it. And I, I've, got, I've got sons that I love to give good gifts to. But I'm also a little bit, well, someone would say cheap. I prefer frugal. Uh, you know, I, I'm a little bit uh, tight on the, the purse string sometimes. But that never stops my son Malachi, my, my uh, middle child. When he wants something, he lets me know. And he doesn't let me know just one time. He lets me know another time and another time and another time. And so first it was a hoverboard. Called them a hoverboard. It's a self-balancing scooter that you can get on with just with two feet and you can zip around. He's like, someone brought a hoverboard from, from home to school for show and tell. And then from that point on, all he wants for Christmas is a hoverboard. I want a hoverboard. I want a hoverboard. He talks about it all the time with his little looking up with his expectant you know, eyes. Please, please, please. I'm like, no, never getting a hoverboard. Then it was a dog. I want a dog. I'm like, yeah, right. You thought a hoverboard was a, was a big, great check. We're not getting a puppy. Are you kidding me? Like, that's not just being cheap with money. I'm out of the time, the energy for that. And there was a whole list of things. And it was every day, I want a puppy, I want a puppy, I want a puppy. Um, so this happened the other day in my neighborhood. And you'll see exactly how his persistent requests worked out. Show that video clip. There you go, right? So now he can use the hoverboard to walk the dog that we caved to give him. And church, this is the example. This is what the parables are meant to tell us. If, if, if me and my imperfect relationship with my son will, will be moved by his persistent requests out of my love for him, how much more will our perfectly heavenly Father desire to move speedily to answer our persistent prayers? So Pray. Pray earnestly and pray all the time. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart if you don't hear an answer to prayer right away. Don't lose heart if you don't receive the answer you're looking for. God, Jesus himself, has invited us to pray to him persistently. Do it all the time. And perhaps the most important example that we get from the early church in Acts 12 is not just that they pray earnestly or persistently, but it's that they pray together. They pray corporately. This was not a church that was scattered to their own homes, praying for the release of Peter. This was a church that believed in this request so much that they gathered together. And they gathered together in the middle of the night to pray for this. They prayed together. And and I'm I'm sure that if we could get the full picture here, that there was more homes, uh, more believers that were gathered in those homes. And this would not be the only place that was set aside, dedicated for a time of prayer. And sometimes in our individualized life, we can also over-individualize our prayer life. And I think that's to our detriment. There is significant value for our church in gathering together to pray, to not just doing it on our own at home. We believe this to be true. And again, something that I've enjoyed doing is that throughout our, our time in Acts, we've highlighted different aspects of our mission statement of how we see what God has called us to do reflect what God has called the church to do from the very beginning. And then now, prayer is not in our mission statement, but prayer is one of our six core values at Stony Brook Fellowship. We believe it is important. It is vital. It's part of our DNA as a group of believers. And and yes, we want this to be true individually. We want you to pray to God continually in your life. We want it to be true together as well. We want to make sure that we give time to pray as the gathered people of God. This could be a formal prayer meeting. It could be uh, the the regular meetings of the spiritual life and care team that comes together to pray for your requests and what you're facing in life. It could be that, that we want all of our fellowship groups to pray for one another when they meet or the discipleship groups to do the same. We want this to spill out in your relationships together as family and friends. Don't just pray alone. Take the opportunity to pray together. Make it part of the DNA of what we have going on as a church. And what we see in Acts 12 is nothing new. It's just a reflection. It's just a continuation of what the church has been doing since its inception. All the way back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. What did the very earliest church do? What was important to them? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They gathered together to eat, to learn from the Word, and to pray. That was Part of the DNA of the church from the beginning, it's still part of the, the DNA of the church even when the going gets tough, and it has to be part of the building blocks of our church here at Stony Brook Fellowship. When we share and focus prayer together, we can also then see God answers, uh, answer our prayers together, and we can celebrate that answer of prayer together. My previous church was New Life Church in Stonewall, and they have a really neat story that happened way before I got on the scene. In fact, this is about happened in in, in the spring of 1980 when I was approximately minus five years old. But it's an amazing story, and I want to read it for you. Because sometimes I think, we, we, we think of the power of prayer, and we hear some of these stories, and it seems like it happens to different people far away in different times. I'm saying, this was the church that I worked at, and this is part of their story, and I just want to share to you one, one example that I believe is a powerful example of, of praying together. Now, these are the words written by Pastor Henry Ozzurney. All my life I believed in the miracle working power of prayer. One of my favorite verses is James 5.16 the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the King James Version. The New International Version translates it, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The Living Bible puts it, the earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and wonderful results. Over the 40 years of ministry at New Life, he says, I have seen many of those wonderful results. Let me tell you about some of them. The first one that comes to mind goes to the summer of 1980. It had been the driest spring in 100 years or so, they said. Combined with record high temperatures, the resulting drought was serious. Farmers all around were worrying about whether or not to plant their crops in view of such dry conditions. At the same time, forest fires were raging all across the country. In northwestern Ontario, many people had been evacuated from their homes because of them. Sound familiar a little bit, right? Trying to set the scene here in 1980. At a monthly board meeting, we talked about what we could do. I recalled as a young boy going to special prayer meetings with my parents in a Baptist church back home during a drought that hit Saskatchewan in 1961. Yeah, Pastor Henry was pretty old. And I suggested that the members of the board that we should set aside a day to pray for rain. They all agreed, and the following Wednesday, May 28th, was chosen. So in my weekly column for the local paper, I announced the day of prayer for rain and invited everyone from the community to join us. Come and go from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. The day we were to pray dawned sun, sunny and hot, and by 8:30 it was already 30 degrees Celsius as I walked to the church. I put up a sign on the door announcing a day of prayer with the verse, Ask and you shall receive at the bottom. A small group of half a dozen people or so showed up and we began to pray. At 9:30, while praying, we heard thunder. We kept on praying and it kept on thundering. I went outside to see what was going on, saw a big cloud and a tiny drizzle starting to fall. I went back in and we kept on praying. The drizzle turned into rain and then into a downpour. The rain was so loud on the roof of the church that I could not hear my wife praying, even though she was kneeling only a few feet away from me. We had to stop because we couldn't hear each other because it was so loud. I walked out into the foyer from where I could see the parking lot was flooded. It was a sea of water. We all began rejoicing and praising God. And then I remembered that every time it rained, the basement of the church flooded. So I went down the stairs to the basement. I could see the water pouring through the windows like it was into going into an aquarium. About two inches of water were lapping against the basement window, patiently waiting so it too could leak into our basement. Then downstairs, I surveyed the mess. The carpets in the Sunday school classrooms were totally soaked. I looked into the baptismal change rooms. I could have had baptized people in the change rooms themselves. However, we were still happy It rained. One man stopped by the church and suggested we stop praying, or at least cut it down a bit. Seeing the downpour, I estimated we got two inches of rain in less than one hour. I decided to sign, uh, change the sign announcing the day of prayer to a new one. It's a day of praise for prayer received, or rain received, and that's how I entitled it. At the bottom, I put the verse from Isaiah sixty-five twenty-four: "Before the call, before they call, I will answer; while they are still speaking, I will hear." And we continued to celebrate, and that news got into the Winnipeg Free Press and to newspapers as far as Toronto. Prayer for rain answered by flood in church basement. And I came on the scene at that church many, many years later, but they always talked about that story. And it was powerful because it was the answer to prayer. It was miraculous. In fact, if I could keep reading, and I'll skip some of the details, it rained almost only over their church. Three miles down the road, it was still bone dry. So they got together the next week to pray for the rest of the province. It was powerful because God answered prayer. It was powerful because God answered prayer while they were praying together. It was a milestone of that church. It became part of the fabric. It became part of these retold stories that spurred them on when they were frustrated in the future. So when we pray earnestly and consistently, let's also remember to pray together. Of course, we don't want to ever cease being amazed when God answers our prayer. That amazement was a key part of our story. Peter was truly amazed that God was actually rescuing him in real life. The church was honestly amazed that it was actually Peter standing at the door. New Life Church was amazed when God answered their prayer with thunder and with rain. Are we looking forward to being amazed when God answers our prayers? But of course, the early church wasn't very ready to be amazed. Peter wasn't truly ready for an angel of God to rescue him. He doubted if it was actually happening. And it wasn't the amazing faith of those gathered to pray that made God move because they didn't believe when God actually answered their prayer. So what does this tell us about our faith when we pray? I love the quote by N.T. Wright. Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a a moment not as a bunch of great heroes and heroines of the faith, but as the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute and doubt the next sort of people as most Christians we well know, and often the type of Christians that we often are. It wasn't the great faith of the early church that accomplished this miracle. It was the, it was the power of prayer and, and, and the power of God and his desire to answer the prayers of imperfect people. God surprised them then. He will surprise us too. It does not hinge on our faith alone. One reason why I think they were amazed when God answered their prayers is because earlier God did not. Do you remember how the story started? How many apostles were imprisoned in this story? Two. How many apostles were rescued from their imprisonment imprisonment in this story? One. And I believe, very faithfully, that if the church was praying like this for Peter, they were praying the same way for James. Earnestly, consistently, persistently, together, And God allowed James to be executed. He was not saved. He was not rescued. Those prayers received a different answer. And so in the same way that that level of faith wasn't a prerequisite for God to say yes to a certain prayer, it was also not a requirement for God to say yes to a certain prayer. God said yes in one instance and no to the next And some prayers are answered in the exact way that we are looking for, and others are not. And it's not our fault. It's not because we didn't mean it enough. It's not because we didn't have enough faith. It's because God is still God, and He is still sovereign, and He will answer according to His good and perfect will. And our call is to each and every moment pray the same way over and over and over again. Acts 12 gives us a holistic view. That God is capable of accomplishing miracles that will amaze us. He can do it. He will answer. He wants to amaze us. How much more will our Heavenly Father give us what we desire? And he invites us to pray for these miracles together with our whole hearts. And he invites us to accept whatever his response is. And so sometimes we pray for rain and we get drought. Sometimes we pray for healing and it's not received. Don't lose heart. Pray with your whole heart and do so always, 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 and together. With that in mind, let's pray. God, it's hard for me not to understand the irony of the fact that each and every Sunday we get together, we pray right at this moment. And so it can become rote, it can become normal, it can be expected, But God, right now, as we bow our heads and open our hearts to you, you are hearing our prayers. And through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, we are ushered into your presence. And you want to hear us. You incline yourself to us. And so God, knowing full well that you are listening, we want to say thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the saving grace that is available in him. God, I pray that we would be a people even now and as we go, that we would open even the, the hardest parts of our heart to you. That there are some things that we have prayed for and we have given up a long time ago. And God, I pray that you would just allow us to, 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 be, to be softened, to be open, to be, to be brave enough to continue to ask you for those things. God, I thank you that you are the perfectly heavenly Father who desires to hear and to listen and to move in our life. And God, I pray that the prayer that we have now would be from the bottom of our hearts, heard by you and given into your hands to see what you will do next. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.